0: Well, good morning. Thanks for listening in this week at Prairie View Christian Church. Uh, As Joshua mentioned in the announcements, uh, we are six weeks in and maybe, hopefully, starting to see a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel. But for now, we are still physically apart, and we probably will be physically apart for a little bit longer, uh, at least compared to what we were used to back before the virus. But again, we're thankful that you can listen in. And thankful that we have the opportunity to minister to you, even if we can't be together. Now, this week, we are beginning a new sermon series called Songs of Praise, Timeless Lessons from Classic Hymns. Over the next five Sundays, we're going to see how five well-known, historically significant, and beloved Christian hymns line up with the truths we read about in the Bible. Now, of course, hymns are not on the same authoritative level as Scripture. They aren't inerrant, infallible, or inspired the way the Bible is. But hymns can still be useful, meaningful, and inspiring aids in our worship. And they can point us to great biblical truths. And as we examine these five hymns, we may even delve into some of the basic theology of how and why we worship through singing. Now, Christians today, including Christians in our own church, may have mixed reactions when they hear the word hymn. Some older believers who grew up with hymns may feel a sense of heartwarming nostalgia. These believers may even turn their noses up at much contemporary Christian worship music. Meanwhile, some younger believers may hear the word hymn and picture some cranky old woman sitting at an organ in a stale sanctuary where the pews are only 20% filled. These believers may think that hymns should be left where they belong, in the trash can with the printed hymnals. But perhaps all of us can learn something from revisiting, or maybe reading for the first time, these old songs. Maybe they aren't as perfect as some of us believe them to be, But maybe they're much more valuable than others believe them to be. I guess we'll find out together. The hymn we begin with is How Great Thou Art. And I assume that most of you are familiar with it. But just in case you're not, we'll read the lyrics. Verse 1. O Lord my God, when I an awesome wonder, consider all the worlds thy hands hath made. I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then comes the chorus. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Verse 2. When through the woods and forest glades I wander and hear the birds sing sweetly in the trees. When I look down from lofty mountain grandeur and hear the brook and feel the gentle breeze. Then you go back to the chorus. Then verse 3. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. You go to the chorus again, and then verse four. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart? Then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, my God, how great thou art. This hymn was originally written in 1885 by a Swedish man named Carl Boberg, but the lyrics that most of us are likely used to hearing were translated by Stuart K. Hine in 1949. The song first gained popularity in America at Billy Graham Crusades in the 1950s and has been recorded some 1,700 times since. How Great Thou Art has been cited as the favorite hymn of three U.S. presidents and has become particularly common at funerals, including for two of my own grandparents. At its root, this hymn points us to the greatness of God, and that is something that scripture has plenty to say about. So feel free to open your Bibles as we read. We'll jump from passage to passage. But before we do any reading, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we have to hear from your word. Again, even though we are scattered, uh, we also know that we are still brothers and sisters. We also know that even when we're not meeting under the same roof, we are still a church. We are still a family. And I ask you to watch over our church, watch over our family this week and every other week. You already have these past five weeks. You've taken care of us. You've provided for us. You've protected us. And Lord, we thank you for that. And we look to you uh, as we seek to press on uh, in the weeks ahead, however long it might be. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us keep our eyes fixed on you, that you would give us endurance and perseverance, uh, that you would sustain us through the weeks ahead. And Lord, thank you for this opportunity to worship you. Uh, Thank you for Easter last week, the timeless, eternal truth of your son's death and resurrection. And it's because of the eternal, timeless truth of Easter that here in 2020 we sing songs like How Great Thou Art. Uh, So Lord, we worship you. And I ask you to be with us as we read from your word today, as we Consider the words of this great Christian hymn uh, that they would inspire us and encourage us and point our eyes to you uh, in whatever it is that we might be dealing with at this moment. Uh, Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this hymn, uh, but even more so, thank you for your word and thank you for your son and thank you for your spirit. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, in 2007, the late Christopher Hitchens, one of the more famous firebrands of the now not-so-favored group known as the New Atheists, wrote a book whose title ruffled some feathers. The book was called God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. Now, the arguments were the same old arguments that have been made and debated for centuries, though many college freshmen have thought they're new and revolutionary when they hear them in their first philosophy course. But here's the truth. If Hitchens was correct, that God really isn't that great after all, then yes, religion really can poison everything. Because if God is not great, then what's the point of everything that follows? However, we Christians believe that God is great. And here are just a few of the reasons why. If you look at the first two verses of How Great Thou Art, they are all about creation. The lyrics go on to tell us that you can see God's greatness in the worlds God's hands have made. In the song, shining stars, roaring thunder, tall trees, singing birds, flowing brooks, and breathtaking mountain ranges all point to the greatness of God. And scripture gets at this same idea. Joshua read it earlier, Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. In the New Testament, we see Romans 1, 19 and 20. The Apostle Paul says there, For what can be known about God is plain to them, them being all mankind, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they, all mankind, are without excuse. In Paul's mind, no one who has stepped foot in creation can claim ignorance about God. In the second century, a man named Tertullian called creation the proof from the works of God's hands, so numerous and so great, which both contain you and sustain you, which minister at once to your enjoyment And strike you with awe. Around the 8th century, a man named John of Damascus, and later Thomas Aquinas, argued for God's existence by looking at the world and realizing that there must be an unmoved mover who created it. It had to have had a starting point. And then much later, the reformer John Calvin wrote that God so manifests his perfections in the whole structure of the universe and daily places himself in our view that we cannot open our eyes without being compelled to behold him. In short, when we see the order and beauty of the world, we Christians become more and more convinced that there must be a creator. And that he indeed is great. There is obvious purpose and design in the world that we see. But there is also unspeakable and even unnecessary beauty. Atheist, mathematician, and astrophysicist Fred Hoyle once compared the chances of our world being random in its origin to the chances of a tornado sweeping through a junkyard and assembling a Boeing 747. Once again, quoting John Calvin, Man was created to be a spectator of this formed world, and eyes were given him, that he might, by looking on so beautiful a picture, be led up to the author himself. Again, in short, creation is made in such a way that when we look at it, We ought to conclude that there is a God, and we ought to sing of how great he is. So the order and the beauty of creation point us to the greatness of God. In theological terms, this is often referred to as general revelation. General revelation is God's way of revealing himself in the things that everyone experiences, simply by existing in the world that he has made. That's what Psalm 19 and Romans 1 are talking about. However, there are still some unanswered questions. Creation might tell us that there is a God, and that he is great, but in order to really get to know God personally, we need something more than general revelation. To even begin to truly grasp the greatness of God and why He's so worthy of our worship, we need special revelation. Now, what is special revelation? Well, if general revelation is God revealing Himself through the natural world He has made, then special revelation is God intervening in our world in a unique or even miraculous way to tell us more about who He is. For Abraham, it was an audible voice calling to him. For Moses, it was a vision of a burning bush. For the nation of Israel, it was the giving of God's divine law, or the inspired words of the prophets. But for Christians like us, God's special revelation of himself is the gift of the Bible. It's the activity of the Holy Spirit. And most emphatically, it's the gospel of Of Jesus Christ. You know, watching a beautiful sunrise or hearing waves crashing on the shore or looking into the eyes of a newborn baby really can tell us a lot about God. But God reveals Himself to us in more personal, more detailed ways in His Word than He does through any of those things. It's in God's word that we learn the deeper realities of God's character, God's accomplishments in the past, God's actions right now, and God's plans for the future. More than anywhere else, we see God's greatness and conversely, our smallness in the Bible. Likewise, we come to a true saving knowledge of who God is, And what God has done for us by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by surveying the order and beauty of creation. Taking in a breathtaking landscape or studying the complexity of the human body really can tell you something about God's greatness. But ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit who convicts us of sin, points us to our need for God's grace And brings us from unbelief to faith and from rebellion to repentance. It's the gracious activity of the Holy Spirit that produces in us a desire to worship God rightly, obey God fully, and love God faithfully. And of course, the entrance of God the Father's Son, Jesus Christ, into our world is the means by which we are reconciled to him acknowledging God's greatness because you were awestruck by a bright crack of lightning in the sky or the immense depth of the Grand Canyon. That's all well and good, but that won't atone for your sin. It's only by faith in the broken body and shed blood of Christ that we are forgiven by God and truly come to know him as our father. That's what the hymn gets at in verses three and four. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. How great thou art would not be the same hymn if you took those verses away. In the same way, our knowledge of God would not be the same if you took away the special revelation of the gospel. So we Christians believe that God really is great. We begin to conclude this through the general revelation of the world he has made. But we come to a richer and more intimate knowledge of God through his special revelation. His inspired word, his convicting Holy Spirit, And his saving son. But what do we really mean when we say that God is great? We say all kinds of things are great a great restaurant, a great book, a great game, the great efficiency and effectiveness of the IRS sending out stimulus checks. But on a deeper level, what do we mean when we say that God is great? What do we mean when we sing, How great thou art. Now, this sermon would never end if I tried to perfectly sum up the entirety of God's greatness. No preacher's words could ever truly do it justice. But for our purposes, if I had to narrow God's greatness down to two big areas of focus, it would be his power and his goodness. So, what do we think of when it comes to God's power? Historically, Christians have described God's power with words like transcendence, meaning that God is wholly other from his creation. His power is seen in the omni words that we use to describe God. He's omnipotent, which means all powerful, omniscient, which means all knowing, omnipresent, which means he's everywhere at all times. We may speak of God's infinity, that he is not bound by the constraints of time and space, and he is subject to nothing outside of himself. We talk of God's eternity, that he has always existed and always will exist. We think of his sovereignty, that every single event in our world is within his sphere of control. It's appropriate that one of the most common titles for God in the Bible is almighty. He really is that powerful. We see it in Genesis 1-1 when God creates the universe out of nothing, simply by speaking. In the Ten Commandments, the Israelites are commanded not to worship any other gods or to make images of any god at all. Not because the one true God is insecure. Not because he's just not into art. It's because there is no other God besides him. It's because any attempt by human hands to represent him will inevitably sell him short. That's how powerful he is. We see it in Job 38 through 41, where God's magnificent power over all creation is seen. God has power over all the things that Job has no power over. All the things that we have no power over. We see it in the Psalms. In Psalm 2, God laughs at earthly rulers who even try to oppose him. In Psalm 29, God's voice thunders over the waters, breaks the cedars, and flashes forth flames of fire. Psalm 47 sums it up by saying... The Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Acts 17, 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And then in Revelation, at the end of the book, Jesus says that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He is all-powerful. God is the Almighty. And what do we think of when it comes to God's goodness? God isn't just raw power. He is good. He's good in terms of holiness. He's good in terms of purity. In fact, God is the very definition of goodness. He determines what good is to begin with. He's righteous and just. He is unchanging because he has no need to improve or grow. He is kind, he is gracious, he is generous, he is patient. He is perfect and complete, steadfast love. Leviticus 19 verse 1 stresses God's holiness, not just in moral terms, but in terms of being completely separate from anything that is less than holy. In Exodus 34, 6 and 7, God says of himself, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. For us, those attributes or characteristics might sound contradictory but they aren't for God. In the Psalms, Psalm 34, verse 8, tells us to taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 118 begins and ends with the phrase, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. God is great for the totality of who he is. He is perfect power and perfect goodness. His power and his goodness do not contradict each other. They do not compete against each other. Think for a moment of someone who is powerful, but not good. That person could quickly become a tyrant. Think of someone who is good, but not powerful. They might mean well, but they can't ultimately help you when you need them. But God is great. Because he is perfect power and perfect goodness. God is great because God is God. That's why we can sing, How Great Thou Art. That's why in the words of Psalm 96, we ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. He's so great that this glory is due him. It would be an injustice not to worship him. That's how great he is. You know, I'm not entirely sure we Christians spend enough time simply sitting and reflecting on the greatness of God. But perhaps there's no better time than now to start. A man by the name of Anselm once described God as something than which nothing greater can be thought. I'll say that again. Something than which nothing greater can be thought. If you think of God as someone who may or may not exist. Someone who may or may not be great. You're clearly not even thinking about God at all. He's so great. He's so self-existent. That the thought of him not existing is absurd. In the words of. Augustine, most high, utterly good, utterly powerful, most omnipotent, most merciful and most just, deeply hidden and yet most intimately present, perfection of both beauty and strength, stable and incomprehensible, immutable and yet changing all things, never new, never old, Making everything new and leading the proud to be old without their knowledge. Always active. Always resting. Gathering to yourself but not in need. Supporting and filling and protecting. Creating and nurturing and bringing to maturity. Searching, even though to you nothing is lacking. You love without burning. You are jealous in a way that is free from anxiety. You repent without the pain of regret. You are wrathful and remain tranquil. You will a change without any change in your design. You recover what you find, yet have never lost. Never in any need, you rejoice in your gains. You are never greedy, yet you require interest. We pay you more than you require so as to make you our debtor. Yet who has anything which does not belong to you? You pay off debts, though owing nothing to anyone. You cancel debts and incur no loss. But in these words, what have I said, my God, my life, my holy sweetness? What has anyone ever achieved when he speaks about you? Yet woe to those who are silent about you. Because though talkative and wordy, they have nothing to say. If those words on God's greatness don't blow your mind, I'm not entirely sure what will. Jonathan Edwards wrote, God is the fountain of love as the sun is the fountain of light. Seeing that he is an all-sufficient being, it follows that he is a full and overflowing and inexhaustible fountain of love. He wrote more than just sinners in the hands of an angry God. William of Ockham says, The distinction between the wisdom of a creature and the wisdom of God is as great as the distinction between God and a stone. Again, seeing God's greatness shows us our smallness. And Ronald Knox says, If you once know that God exists, you will find that he fills the whole stage. Christians before us came up with these stunning words about the greatness of God. May we learn from them. May we reflect on God's greatness as they did. And may we be just as taken aback by what, they, what we find as they were. Dwelling on the power and the goodness of God, the greatness of God, is how songs like How Great Thou Art it written. Pastor A.W. Tozer once said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So does God's sheer greatness come into your mind when you think about it? It should. It did for Carl Boberg. That's what spurred him on to write, How Great Thou Art. And with him, and with countless Christians before us, may thinking about our God motivate us to praise him, and may our souls sing of his greatness. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the perfect embodiment of God's greatness. He's powerful enough to take our sins upon his shoulders on the cross. And he's good enough to actually do it to the point of death. Jesus tells us of the greatness of God in Matthew 10. A passage that shows both his power and goodness at the same time. God is powerful enough to destroy both our bodies and souls in hell. But good enough to protect every last hair on our heads. And we can call this fearsomely powerful and radically good God, our Father, because of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. It's thanks to Jesus that we can joyfully sing as God's sons and daughters, how great thou art. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Let's pray. Lord, if nothing else, we are just in awe of your greatness And there is something to be said for Christians like us, no matter where we are right now, in our offices, on our couches, with our families, by ourselves, whenever we're back at Prairie View, there is something to be said for us taking a moment, taking a sermon, taking a Sunday, to simply sit and think and reflect and marvel at your greatness. Again, Lord, we simply glorify you. My words, our words, even the, the words of how great thou art, don't truly do your greatness justice. But I pray that in your grace you would find this act of worship acceptable, that you in your power and in your goodness would find this act of worship pleasing. And Lord, I pray that you would inspire us on to... Dwell upon your greatness and think upon your greatness. And that your greatness wouldn't just become something we think about in our heads. By knowing a bunch of theological words and sharing a bunch of theological quotes. But that your greatness would really strike down to our hearts. That it would sink into our bones. And that we would be continuously in awe of who you are. In awe not only of who you are, but in awe of the fact that you love us in light of who we are sinners but lord again we simply worship you for your greatness we thank you that by the broken body and shed blood of christ we can approach your greatness with confidence that we can call you our father and we can know that you are a great 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 father and we thank you for the privilege and the joy of singing About just how great you are. We love you. We praise you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.